0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com.
2: Hello to everyone. I'm Louisa Kasdan, your host for Let's Talk About Food a podcast devoted to first-person storytelling where food plays a pivotal, if not a starring role. Everyone has a food story. Food is at the heart of human connection, at the center of love, of ritual, of need and want, and most of all, food creates community. And community is what we crave. Nancy Harmon Jenkins is our guest today. Nancy is simply one of the great food authorities in America. She's also one of the great storytellers, as you'll hear. Nancy is the author of eight books on counting and too many articles to count. She teaches, she lectures, she travels all over the world, working from her home bases in Tuscany and in Camden, Maine. She is a legend. From her first Mediterranean diet cookbook, still the benchmark for the topic, to her later ones on pasta and olive oil, her work is singular with her trademark, deep research, detailed recipes, and often hilariously erudite commentary. This is the first part of our conversation with Nancy Harmon Jenkins, and it covers her life from college to the New York Times. We'll return in a few weeks with the story of how Nancy Harmon Jenkins and the Mediterranean diet became conjoined twins. I am proud to be her friend. You are, and we both know this, you especially, one of the great voices and experts in the food world in America, and you have been for several decades, but you could have gone in so many different directions. You and I share something. We both went to the same undergraduate college, Mother Wellesley, as we call it. Why food? Did you come from a food family in uh, ice-cold Maine?
3: (laughs) No, not at all, not at all. I mean, we ate well when I was growing up, but we weren't particularly involved in food. And I think I always loved to eat. I was very greedy as a child, but how did I get into food? Well, it was folk de Mieux, I think. Actually, when I was at that famous undergraduate college that you and I both went to, I majored in something that may not have existed when you arrived there. It was called biblical history, literature, and interpretation. And it was required of all sophomores. And I found it fascinating. That was my major for about a year and a half. And then I realized that I was not interested in the early church fathers, and I was not interested in Christian theology. What I was interested, in actually was the archaeology and history that was expressed in biblical history. So I ended up being yet another English major, but I always had that interest. And then we went to live in the Middle East, in Beirut. My then husband, who was a journalist, foreign correspondent, we went to Beirut. Nancy, but
2: it didn't go quite that fast. I remember that even when you were in college, you wrote a
3: book. That was the year after I got out. Oh, I did a lot of things before I got to Beirut. I had I had boyfriends, lots of boyfriends, and they were all for some reason or other, interested in food, and I I learned a lot about food from them. I always say that I owe my early gastronomic education to a rather well-off lawyer from Cleveland, whose son I was dating. And in those years, oh, best beloved, girls didn't pay for their meals, boys did. So he and I explored the highways and byways of Boston, including places like the Athens Olympia, which you can imagine what they served, and Jacob Worth's Tavern, and even the old Ritz. Uh, We used to go to the Ritz dining room for Sunday morning breakfast. So I learned a lot about food from, not so much from him, but from the experiences that we shared. He and I together wrote a novel, which... We called it Sweet Days and Roses, but the publisher changed the title to Love with a Harvard Accent, because that's really what it was about. It was about sex life in Harvard Square with a group of students who were all involved with each other. And in that book, there is a wonderful scene, which I wrote all by myself with no input from him, of dinner at Lockover's after the Harvard-Yale game, when they get into a Baked Alaska fight. Locke was famous for his Baked Alaska. The Baked Alaska came out and these students got into a food fight. And I can't remember what happened to them as a result, but it was a telling scene in the book in any case. So yeah, my interest in food goes way, way back.
2: I have to interrupt you for one second because I read that book. I'm a couple years younger than you, not so many, but a couple. And my brother had it locked in his drawer. My brother was uh, six years older, and he was at Yale, and he had this book, and it was the first slightly smutty book I ever read. And I was like, whoa, this is good. <laughs>
0: That's <laughs> They're very probably funny.
2: so tame by today's standards, but I remember, and I had to put it back in his drawer exactly the right way so he wouldn't, you know... <laughs>
3: Anybody who goes looking for that book is not going to find it under the name Nancy (laughs) Harmon Jenkins. We published it under a pseudonym. What did we call it? Love of the Harvard... Oh, Leone St. John, which is a name that just occurred to me out of the blue one night. We had to have a pseudonym, and that was it. I did that the year after I got out of school, and then I moved to New York, and I met other guys. I worked for and went out with somebody who... He was a bit older than I was. He'd been in the British Army during the war in the Northwest Frontier and learned to make curry. And his curry started with clarifying an entire two pounds of butter. So that was an introduction to one way of Indian cooking. I grew to the realization that food is a wonderful way to get inside another culture. It's a very quick way to get inside another culture and a very realistic way. And then I got married to this roving reporter and we moved overseas and we lived in England first. That was slightly interesting from the food perspective because there were croissants that came in daily from France and that was very nice. And then we moved to Madrid and then we moved to Paris and that was very interesting. I've just been writing about the time we spent in Paris when I discovered the French markets, which are just so mind-blowingly interesting. Before I first had cilantro, which we call green coriander, bought from a North African in the Rulapique market. And this North African in my recollection, I can't believe this is true, but in my recollection, he had a donkey with him and he was selling little packets of green coriander or cilantro from the back of this donkey. And I keep saying to myself, how did he get the donkey to the Rue Le which is in the heart of the 18th arrondissement? I didn't occur to me to ask him at the time, but I knew the minute I tasted that cilantro, that this was something I had to have in my life. I didn't know how to use it, didn't have a clue, but I knew it belonged there. So then after Paris, we went back to Madrid and Madrid, believe me, was quite dreary then. This was still during the Franco years. It was cut off from the rest of Europe and the food, it was a pretty poor country. It was almost as poor as Portugal and that was really poor at the time. And so the food was not very interesting at all. And then we left there and we went to Beirut. And honest to God, my eyes were opened wide. I mean, olive oil, for instance. The olive oil that we had in Spain at that time, and believe me, they have made enormous strides in uh, recent years. But at that time, it was almost universally rancid olive oil made from over the hill olives. It was fusty. It was terrible. And the smell of it, everybody used it in their cooking in Madrid. The smell of it at about 1.30 in the afternoon when they were getting lunch ready, the smell of this rancid olive oil heating up would flood through the city. So I got to Beirut and there, I mean, October came along, November came along and there I suddenly realized that olive oil was something very special and it had a wonderful flavor and fragrance to it and you could use it in all sorts of interesting ways. Plus, the markets in Beirut, which were... Well, they were similar to the markets in Paris in that they were abundant and full of interesting things and familiar things, you know, like tomatoes and cucumbers and peppers and so forth, but also very unfamiliar new things to me. So I would go daily to the market in the center of town. All of this has disappeared, of course, with the war in Beirut. But also the restaurant food was fabulous there. And we went on these great picnics and we would go up to Byblos and just sit in a restaurant on the beach and have fresh fish right out of the Mediterranean. Or go up into the mountains and have that fresh, very flat bread called khubiz Markuk, which is really just a thin sheet. It's almost like a crepe. It's a thin sheet of bread dough, right hot off the oven These were experiences that I thought were fabulous. But I wasn't a food writer. I was enjoying it all. But I was going to AUB, the American University of Beirut, to get a degree in ancient history and archaeology, because this goes back to Wellesley's required course in biblical history. I had realized by then that that was my interest, was in ancient history of the Mediterranean, which I think is just a fascinating area of study. And so I did that. And then fortuitously, I had the opportunity to pick up on a book that was under contract, but the author was unable for various reasons to complete it. And so um, the editor of the book, knowing that I was a writer and that I was interested in the Mediterranean. Asked me if I would write this book about an ancient Egyptian boat that had been discovered buried next to the Great Pyramid on the Giza Plateau. So, yeah, I said, sure, I'll do that. And I did. And it was fascinating. And I thought, yay, my career is all set. I'm going to be an archaeological journalist. That's what I'm going to be. Well, you know. It's hard to get a gig as a food writer. It's even harder to get a gig as an archaeology writer. There just was nobody who wanted to hire me. No newspaper. I suppose if I'd gone back to New York, I could have begged and pleaded at the New York Times because they had something like a a writer on staff who was interested in archaeology, but nowhere else in the world. And so having taken that book to completion and seen it published, there I was stuck with what to do. You know, I don't think men do this. I think men, most men set out in life with an idea of what they want to be and where they want to go. They don't always make it, but they have that in their minds. Women tend to be much more reactive than proactive things fall in our laps and we take advantage of them. And what fell in my lap at that time was Mort Rosenblum, who was the editor of the Herald Tribune in Paris, which then was being published by the New York Times and the Washington Post. He came to Rome, where I was living at that point. And he said, I need a writer for this new section that we're starting as kind of a weekend features section. Could you write about food from Rome? Well, could I write about food from Rome? Of course I could. Uh, <laughs> so that's really what started me on my career as a food writer. And you know, it, what was thrilling to me then and still is now. My husband was by that time a very well-known journalist, later won a Pulitzer Prize for his journalism, but we're living in Rome and we go out to these embassy cocktail parties, which are sort of required. I was always introduced as the wife of Lauren Jenkins. Well, that changed when I started publishing regularly in the Herald Tribune, and he was introduced as the husband of Nancy Jenkins, which was really (laughs) thrilling to me. Um, So that's how I started out to be a food writer. It was the only thing I could get any money for and, and still keep writing. What I said earlier is absolutely true. First of all, if you're going to study history, all of human history, including what's going on in Eastern Europe right now, is based on guaranteeing the food supply. Wherever you go, ultimately it comes back to that. People need to eat and they need to eat what's familiar. And it's up to the government to provide that, any government, anywhere. Otherwise, the government fails. I totally agree. So that's one thing that I learned. But the other thing I learned and I believe very strongly is that the quickest way to get inside another culture is through food. You go to a new place, you've never been there before. You go to, I don't know, Tajikistan. I'd love to go to Tajikistan. I don't think I ever will, but I'd love to do it. And you go and you go to the markets and you go to the the supermarkets and you go to the street markets and you eat street food and you sit in cafes and you watch people go by and you see what they're eating. And that's where you learn about a culture, about what it is, is through the food. Studying the music is one thing, studying the costume is another, but the food is always present. You
2: say, and I agree with you, that the best way to understand people and understand their culture is to get inside their food. But why is that? What makes it special that somebody's eating pita and someone else is eating brioche? What does that really tell you at its base level?
3: Well, it's a slightly complicated question. Part of the answer has to do with just with human physiology. You know, you are what you eat in a very literal sense. A a great anthropologist once said to me, eating is the most intimate act we perform as humans. And I said, more intimate than sex. And she said, yes, because in eating, you literally recreate yourself three times a day. I also think it's a kind of self-identification. Chinese and the Italians, I think, are quite unique in having clung to their culinary heritage, despite all kinds of opportunities to discard it, because it was their cuisine, their method of cooking, the products that they cooked, that identified themselves to themselves and also identified themselves to the cultures around them you could say, oh, I eat rice with soy sauce because it makes me Chinese. But I also eat rice with soy sauce because it tells the world that I'm Chinese. So it's a very powerful way of identifying yourself. I think the other thing is the connection, which we've largely lost today except in a few fairly remote places in the world, the connection of food to the place that it comes from, the place that people come from. So you find the Chinese have a rice culture. Europeans have a wheat-based culture. Americans, North Americans and South Americans alike have a corn-based culture. I mean the original Americans, not what we call Americans today. That's speaking in very general terms, but then you think about more specific terms like soy sauce. It exists in Asia. It doesn't exist in Africa or South America or in Europe. Think of bread. Bread we think of as universal, but it isn't really. There are lots of cultures that don't actually eat the kind of yeasted, wheat-based or rye-based bread that Northern Europeans and North Americans consider when they talk about bread. So it's this sense of identification that is so strong. And that's also why I say the easiest way to get inside another culture is through its food, because that's where you begin to understand the identity of that culture. Does that, does that help to understand it? When people think about
2: understanding the culture, they're thinking, oh, how great is it? I was in Morocco and I had a tagine. I'm going to go home and make a tagine. Yeah. And that is true. And that's a kind of gustatory tourism. And I, I indulge in that happily. I am happy to do that. But I'm not sure that I really have thought the way you've thought about how that sense of eating, let's say, at the national dishes or the national cuisine, what it really
3: tells me about the place. As Americans, we're voracious for the foods of other cultures. And I think that's partly because we don't really have a culture of our own. You can grow blood oranges in Florida. You can grow them in California. You can grow them in Mexico, but they will never, ever have the flavor of those blood oranges from Sicily because the flavor of those oranges depends on the place where they're grown and the climate they're grown in. I think particularly the place, the soil in which they're grown, it's a volcanic, mineral-rich soil, and California is good for other things, and Florida is good for other things, but Blood oranges, believe me. If you want them, you have to go to Sicily at this time of the year. And I think this is true of a lot of other things. You mentioned Morocco. Go to Morocco. You have a wonderful tagine. You come home. You go online and you order from Amazon all the various ingredients that you can't find in your local supermarket. And you prepare it according to a recipe in Paula Wolfert's wonderful uh, couscous and other good food from Morocco. I think that's the title of it. That was her very first and still her finest cookbook. And it won't taste like what you had in Morocco. I can guarantee it won't taste like what you had in Morocco. It might be delicious. And your friends might all say, oh, my God, this is so fabulous. Will you do this every Saturday for us? But it won't be the same as what you had in Morocco. A lot of that has to do with what I was saying about soil structure, climate, the varieties of things, but also the hand of the cook. That's something that we seldom discuss. I'm going to go off on a tirade. This has to do with pasta and couscous and other things made from wheat flour dough, usually semolina flour dough. I was in, uh, this. you know, I'm a terrible place dropper, but I was in a town in the interior of Anatolia called Safranbolu, close to the Black Sea. And I was visiting a woman. I've been taken there by my friend Engin Akin, who's a wonderful Turkish food writer. And this woman was rolling out filo dough because it was Ramadan and she was preparing Ramadan sweets. So she was rolling out filo dough. She had a Newspaper spread on the floor, and she was down on her knees rolling out this phyllo dough. They talk about it being so thin that you can read a newspaper through it. Well, there was the newspaper, and I could read it through (laughs) the dough. But I realized that the gestures that she was using were so similar to the gestures I'd seen Tuscan women using and, and Umbrian women rolling out pasta dough. And I realized that there's a kind of universal gesture that applies to the working of wheat dough it didn't originate in Central Asia and be transported eastward both Neolithic farmers, it's just something that anybody who works wheat dough eventually comes to. It's very hard to describe but You recognize it when you see it and you say, oh my God, she's doing the same thing that that woman was doing in Cortona or Arezzo last year when she was rolling out the pasta dough. The exact same gestures, the same ways of manipulating the dough in your hands and the same sense. Rice culture is another example of that. Wherever you go in the world, whether it's a rice culture, they will tell you how to cook it. And sometimes they'll tell you to make risotto, and sometimes they'll tell you to make pilaf, and sometimes they'll tell you to just boil it. But almost universally, they will say, when it's done, cover the pan tightly and set it aside to rest for five minutes before you serve it. And this is so universal that it's almost inscribed in the Ten Commandments. That sort of technique can be transmitted. What can't be transmitted is the flavors of the ingredients that come from those places.
2: It's incredible. Does that make any sense? Oh, totally. We'll be back with Nancy Harmon Jenkins as she continues the tale of how she became one of the eminent food writers of her generation. And we are back with Nancy Harmon Jenkins. Let's pick up your story a little bit. When we last tuned in, you were living in Rome and being a food writer. And then what happened? When were the kids born? Were the kids born?
3: Oh, my daughter was born right here in Camden, Maine. From whence I speak to you now, in the Camden Community Hospital where I was born. That just happened because you're going to laugh at this. We were living on a journalist's salary. I'd given up my job because I was eight months pregnant. And so we were living on a pittance in Brooklyn long before Brooklyn became Brooklyn. We lived in Brooklyn because we couldn't afford to live in Manhattan. The cost of having a baby at New York Hospital was around $1,500 to $2,000. And the cost of having a baby at the Camden Community Hospital was $600. So I came home and had the baby here. And believe me, that $600, young mothers hearing this are going to be aghast. The $600 included a three or four day stay. In the hospital for me and the baby until we got used to each other. She was my firstborn. Nico, my second child, was born in Madrid. And that's because that's where we were living at the time. I was fortunate to live in Europe and in Asia. I spent about two and a half years in Hong Kong in that period, at a time when every household had help. So we had home help. You know, very often it was live-in help. It was somebody who came. They didn't take care of the children. They took care of the house so that I could take care of the children. I was very privileged in that way. I'm grateful for it. I mean, it was, it was marvelous to be able to load up the car with kids and take off and go up into the mountains of Lebanon, for instance, and not worry about dinner that night because it would be ready when we got back. The woman who worked for me in Beirut was a wonderful cook. I had some wonderful cooks working for me, too. That was another thing that taught me a lot about food. The woman who worked for me in Beirut was hired as a housekeeper, but she turned out to be a marvelous cook. In Hong Kong, I had the privilege of a really fine Shanghainese cook who also took care of the house, and not so much in Rome. In Rome, I had, I had a Sardinian woman who she was wonderful, Julia, but she was not much of a cook. In Cyprus, I had a wonderful cook for me in Cyprus, too. She used to come over in the morning. She would walk through the hills, bringing with her a chicken that she'd just cooked. And she'd bring the chicken in and plunk it down on the sideboard. And I'd put my hands on it and jump back because it was still blood warm. I couldn't cut into a blood warm chicken. I had to put it in the refrigerator and let it cool down for a while. The children just came along. And this is, I think, one reason why both my children are very good cooks now and very interested in food, because they grew up eating food all over the world and eating, you know, the kind of odd food that American kids don't usually get to taste.
2: And what happened to the husband? And how did you end up being somebody who focused so much on Italy?
3: I first went to Italy. I was still in school and I went on one of those famous European tours that we girls did back then. There were four of us, three from Wellesley and one from somewhere else and and we got together and we had a tour. And I remember in this VW van being driven by a driver. I mean, this is this it's incredible. It sounds like um Edith Wharton when you go back and look at these things. <laughs> we had a VW van with a driver from Paris down through France across into Italy, up into Austria past Germany and back to the channel where we got the ferry to London. So in that van, I'm standing, I had a sliding roof and I'm standing up with my head sticking out of the roof. And it's July, it's probably around eight o'clock at night, but there's still that Alpen glow in the air. And we're coming down through Tuscany. And I didn't know anything about Tuscany at that point. But I realized that all around me, the wheat had been harvested and was standing in shooks in the fields, and the full moon was rising, and it was a blissful night, sort of balmy, but with a hint of freshness in the air, and you could smell the newly cut hay, straw, whatever it was. It was standing in the fields, and I thought, I want to be an Italian. I want to do this all the time. Well, it was a long time before I actually got to do it. I mean, I'm I'm really telling you my life story. I was I married it. to a spendthrift, a wonderful spendthrift. I mean, he spent his money on on fantastic things, but we never, ever had enough money to do anything with as foreign residents, we didn't have to pay American income taxes, except if we made over $75,000 a year. Well, $75,000 back then was a fortune, believe me. And we never got up there. But at one point, Congress was talking about taxing overseas Americans. So I very wisely started putting aside money so that when it came time to pay the IRS, we would have the money to do so. Then Congress, blessfully, did not Passed that legislation. So here we had a chunk of money. And I said, All right, let's put it into real estate. And at that point, we had friends who had bought a place in the hills behind this little town of Cortona in southeastern Tuscany. So we went to visit them and we bought a house. It was a tumble down shack, but it came with 25 acres of farmland. So there we were. We became Tuscans. That was the beginning of something that really changed my life in enormous ways, getting to live in that community and to know, especially my next door neighbors who were peasant farmers. They owned their own land, but in all other respects, they lived the way the Contadini had lived for generations. They grew almost all of their own food. They bought coffee, they bought salt, they bought black pepper. The salt and the black pepper were for curing sausages and prosciutto. They raised pigs, they raised chickens and ducks. They used to raise sheep, but they'd stopped doing that by the time we arrived. And all of their food came from their gardens. And I learned so much from them about that relationship between where you are in the world and what you eat and how you treat it and how you make do with what you have. It was, it was a magnificent experience. They lived very much as their grandparents had lived on this land. They had no mechanized means of transportation. The boy, who's now the head of the family, had a Vespa that he rode into school every day. But apart from that, they had nothing. They had no electricity. They had a a pipe in the farmyard that provided fresh water for them, but they had nothing in the house, no plumbing in the house at all. No phone, of course. I remember I was there for Easter and, and we were all having Easter lunch together. They were taking videos of us having our Easter lunch and celebrating it and cooking stuff in the wood-burning oven and slaughtering chickens and making pasta and all of that. And we sit down to eat and they put the video into the television and we start looking at ourselves having fun. And I thought, this is such a comment on the late 20th, early 21st century. I can't believe it. They still live very tied to the place. I hope they never leave it because I love having them there. I love having them as neighbors. They've been wonderful friends down through the years, and the old people have died, but we're still very close to them, and they keep an eye on the place when we're not there and let us know if the olive trees have been afflicted with a disease or something like that. But their lives are so very different. One of the things that changed them a lot was television, and I want to tell you a little story about that Mita, who was my friend, she was 10 years older than I was, and she was the woman who runs the household, is the messiah. Mita was the messiah, and she was a wonderful cook. One Easter, she had made a salad. So she'd gone out as she was wont to do and patrolled all the fields and terraces and collected this incredible incredible array of wild foraged greens, which she put into her big salad bowl and doused it with olive oil and homemade vinegar and all of that. And on top of it, she had scattered these little blue violets that come up at that time of the year. I thought I was in Chez Panisse when I saw these violets. I said to her, oh my goodness, violets? I didn't know you could eat violets. Oh, she said, I saw it on television and it seemed like a good idea. (laughs) So (laughs) that's the change. That's what happens. Well, yeah, we
2: are informed by the world. That is fascinating. They made their
3: own olive oil. They made their own wine. Everything that they had when we first knew them came from their fields. And the forest, the forest was a great resource for them too. They made charcoal. Uh, And charcoal making, this is something that I found fascinating because I think Bruno, the father, the husband of Mita, was the charcoal maker, and he burned charcoal every year in the late springtime when the ground was still damp. He'd make a big mound down in the woods somewhere, and he would make this charcoal that was so beautiful. You could tell when you looked at one of the charred logs or limbs or branches, you could tell what kind of a tree it was because you could still see the striations of the bark. And I realized then, going back to my ancient history, that this was an incredibly ancient technology. And it was the technology that had to have been developed in the Neolithic period when people first started making clay pots and baking bread too. Because to make a clay pot and to make it one that lasts, you have to have a high temperature fire. And the only way you get a high temperature fire from wood is by turning it into charcoal first. And then you get that very high temperature with which you can fire pots in which you can cook your stews and your beans and and your grains and all the other stuff. So it's one of those technologies that we've forgotten about, but it really seems to be the thing that has to precede everything else no matter where you are in the world. The other thing you need charcoal for is to smelt metal. So if you're going to make bronze, which requires tin and copper mixed together, you have to have, again, a very hot, hot fire to do that. And that's what where the charcoal comes in.
2: Huh. And so at some point, you came back to the States. Yeah. And you were part of that the whole launching of Old Ways and even before Old Ways and... Uh, the notion of looking at food culture, world food culture, as
3: an integrated whole. That too was fortuitous. I had bought a house in Maine. It became necessary to put my children in school in the United States if they were going to go anywhere in the world at all. And so I settled down in South Thomaston in this house and lived there for a couple of years. And I also, because my rapidly becoming Mm ex-husband loved Aspen and wanted to spend lots of time there. I thought Aspen was pretty boring, but skiing was good and the music was good in the summertime, but the rest of it was kind of awful. But in any case, that's what we did. We went back and forth between Maine and Aspen and this house that we had in Tuscany. And I never felt settled anywhere. And all of a sudden, out of the blue again, the style section editor of the New York Times called and offered me a job as a reporter in the food section. So that was my exit from this rapidly diminishing marriage. And I went to New York and I worked for the Times for three years. And I loved working. It was great training. I really learned how to be a journalist there, how to write to a deadline, how to write concisely, how to keep myself out of the story, which was critical at the times at that time. It no longer is. And it was great, but I hated being in New York City. There, There's a lot of food there, but there was also a lot of really shabby shabby kind of experiences that one was confronted with. So I wasn't at all happy living there, and I kept thinking I really wanted to be in Boston. And about that time, along came Greg Drescher from the American Institute of Wine and Food and offered me a job as the editor of the Journal of Gastronomy, a kind of unfortunate title, but that's okay. It was a quarterly publication, a kind of scholarly approach to food. So I leapt at the chance, and that was my opportunity also to leave New York and move to Boston, where I knew I would be much happier. During that time, was given the grandiose title by Julia Child of publications director of the American Institute of Wine and Food. And believe me, it was a title that was grandiose in name only. I fought constantly to get this journal out because they were supposed to be paying printer's bills and designer's bills and stuff like that. And those they were never paid. And the designer would say, I'm sorry, we can't work on this any longer. We haven't been paid for the last issue. And the printer was hanging off, you know, calling me daily, wanting to know where his check was. And they were all out in California and I was in Boston. So, Dunn Gifford became the chair of the American Institute of Wine and Food. He dreamed up this idea of an exchange program that would take groups of American chefs, food writers, and interested parties to a foreign country, kind of hands across the sea, good neighbor policy. At a certain point he and Greg Drescher and I split away from the AIWF and formed Old Ways Preservation and Exchange Trust. Thank you, Nancy. Just great. We'll be back
2: later in the season with Part 2 of Nancy Harmon Jenkins, where she will continue the story of how she became a central figure in the public awareness of the Mediterranean diet. Thanks for listening. Let's Talk About Food is produced by The Food Voice. I'm producing, along with audio director and composer Mike Moss of Soundscape Boston. You can find more of our stories at our website, letstalkaboutfood.com, and on Heritage Radio or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's Talk About Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio is supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage.